I was very fortunate. Worked for a wee well under Jock Steen. But as a psychologist, incredible. Great technical knowledge of the game. But the other side of it, being able to manipulate people, mostly in a positive way. Yeah. So I like, you know, worked under him briefly as well. Interesting to watch his methodology. That's changed over the years. But I had other managers that uh, like I called John Neal when I was at um, Chelsea. And he managed me the perfect way, which was let me wear my headphones up until five minutes before the game and then say to the team, right, give the ball to Pat and you'll win. Welcome to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Colgower, a podcast that dives into the depths of understanding communication in all walks of life. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. This morning, as we're recording over Zoom, I am joined by a man who's, well, he's done just about everything in football except manage. You've been a player, you've uh, you've you've pl- represented your country, Scotland, you've worked as a chairman of the PFA down in England, and you've even been a player chief executive for Motherwell Football Club. Pat Nevin, Pat, how are you? Well, I'm very well. I suppose there's a few other things to add to that as well. <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we'll be able to fit in absolutely everything you've managed to do in your career. But I mean, I've, I've, we were just talking there. I've had the pleasure of reading your second book, Football and uh, How to Survive It, and the insight that you get from that is just incredible. And um, reading it was very much enjoyable, but I'm sure writing it was probably took you back to quite a few different places in your career. Well, first thing to say is, uh, you, when you play football, maybe there are other industries like it, but certainly in football at top level, you never look back, not even to last week. You right. look forward. Um, you live in the moment as well, but you look forward all the time. Because if you played Brownley two weeks ago and you played bad last week, you're out the team next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the way it is. So you can't you can't afford to do that stuff. So I hadn't really looked back that that much, you know, since I retired, and I retired twenty odd years ago. Um, I've been I've done a lot of jobs um, in between that period of time. So to look back after that, the first thing is you feel guilty because <laughs> it's almost like it's, it's it's inside who you are that you do not look back. It's a guilty pleasure, even if you were playing and you scored a great goal. You might watch it on the telly that night, but you're not going to sit and pour over it on a video <laughs> as as it was in those days. All day long, you've got to look forward. You've got to progress. Um, or else, even standing still is going backwards in football. So looking back, you know, it was astounding. You know, yeah. some of the times it felt like a different world, a different person. Um, but one of the things that didn't change much was um, attitudes. Yeah, I don't know if matches of you know you hey you learn a lot and you change attitudes towards certain things, but the core of who you are ethically, I'm hoping that didn't change massively, um, as you went along and learned all these things. But yeah, to be honest, it was great fun. A looking back in the end, and B I actually love writing, so the writing was great fun doing that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've we've already jumped into your second book, but your first book, you you you're a self-proclaimed. You said you're the accidental footballer. Football, I mean, was it a career path that you actually saw when you were a youngster starting out at Clyde where you started to see yourself going from Clyde down to London and playing for Chelsea and spending the best part of, what, 14, 15 years down in England forging a, a very successful professional football career? Um, and it always upsets people within the industry when I say, no. <laughs> <laughs> no it's not that I didn't 
I wasn't interested in football. I loved football, as people can tell that I'm still involved in the game, you know, commentaries and things like that. Um, but no, I, I had no intention of becoming a footballer. Loved the actual playing. Absolutely loved it. Loved training. Um, fitness fanatic, all that sort of stuff. But I kind of did it from a very young age for one reason above all else was I loved the creativity of it. I loved hopefully being quite good at it. I quite like winning as well. That was a good thing. Um, but the, the creativity and the joy of football was the thing that, and the beauty of football when it was done right. Okay, so I kind of grown up watching a Celtic team that had been, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, from Jimmy Johnson through to Kenny Douglas, you know, they weren't bad to watch. They were all right, you know. <laughs> and then around about that time, there was the Brazilian national team and uh, the Dutch as well. My team actually down south with Chelsea, mm-hmm. weird, 1970. It was good and cooking and all that. So, you know, I'd, I'd seen a lot of beautiful football and I thought, oh, yeah, I love doing that. But actually doing it as a job. No, no, never really occurred. No, it occurred to my dad who was training me. He thought I would be good enough. Never told me that. But even when I became a footballer, and this is the weird bit, um, with Clyde, I turned them down. I turned down lots of teams um, because I was doing my degree, and it, it was amazing. I, I, put, I, I was Craig Brown came up to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this now sadly lately lost Craig, who's a wonderful man. And he tried to talk me to play for Clyde. And I said, actually, I'm doing a degree, a degree mate, because I was playing for a boys' club against his team, Clyde, and, uh, and a friendly. And then he said, well, we can give you 30 quid a week. And I went, give that pen. <laughs> <laughs> so because, you know, being a student, I think of yeah. skin. I, and I wanted to go to gigs and I wanted to buy albums and, I, you know, wanted to take a girlfriend or whatever. So... That's that was it, you know. For all my kind of high ideals, yeah, I'll take the money. Take the money, but, but it was joy was I was able to still enjoy it. But I mean, I, I, that's it. And I mean, from your career and from what I've read and and heard you speaking before in the past, you stuck out as a footballer because you weren't the quintessential what people described at a time as a footballer. You're talking, you're going back to the seventies and eighties now, where. You know, there was a lot of perceptions around what a footballer should look like. It was a man's man. You were a big guy. You would maybe drink after games and you, you you had good times. But you were studying a degree, which at the time would probably be slightly unusual for a footballer to be doing. And also, as you've mentioned as well, it just touched upon there, your passion for music and the arts and, and on all that kind of thing, which again, when you look at what the perception of a footballer was back then, it wasn't that, was it? Absolutely not. Um, but it didn't affect me because hmm. I'm for Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> and Easter House, I'm for, uh, you know, and you've, you've got that thing where if you come from a strong-minded family and from that part of the world, you know, you, you're comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. So I mean, my argument with all the footballers was when they called me weirdo or whatever, I would say, no, no, I'm normal. You're all weird. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of laugh at the kind of, the kind of wee guy who's quite quiet to sort of just standing up to them and not caring. And and that's something about the background, you mm. know, where you're brought up. It's not, you know, you can, there's this strange dichotomy of hopefully having a, a strong personality when it's needed and being big enough and strong enough and hopefully brave enough to stand up when it's needed. Um, but, you know, not being showy or aggressive or you don't need to do that, especially when you're creative. So, yeah, it, it did stand out. But oddly, it never really, for me, 
led to any particular difficulty. And it's one of those things, I think we are in a culture where I think we're trading victimhoods sometimes. <laughs> I come from a culture that doesn't do that. It's like, okay, what are my weaknesses? Like, can I make them my strengths? Yeah. You know, really, that's, that's, that's the attitude. Now, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not having to go to anyone else who has a different attitude. Times change. It's just it's just where I came from. So if you were small, yeah, appreciate the smallness. Use it. You know, I've got a tighter turning circle against a big Galvey centre back that might try and tackle me. So I'll use that. You know, and then it's it's all of those things. And if I'm different, I have different interests. I shouldn't hide them under a bushel. I should just do what I do. Be normal, you mm-hmm. know, as everybody else does. I also had this whole thing where, and again, it's a weird thing within, hopefully it comes across in the first, but quite a bit. I had no interest whatsoever in the fame at all. None. Yeah. Okay. Um, in fact, I kind of didn't like it because I just want, you just want to be a normal life and you want to be treated for who you are and what you are. I was quite earnest back in those days. <laughs> I had a laugh, but quite earnest in those days. So you know, all these things mixing in, but doesn't that just make who people are? Um, and I, there was times when I went through the game, I met some lads who, you know, I've I, a classic example. I was at a game last week, mm-hmm. and the guy who was doing the co-coms for CIBT, don't know who, uh, Andy Hinchcliffe. And Andy's exactly the same as me. <laughs> so, you know, we just be ourselves. Yeah. And we played together for a wee while at Everton. But there are people, you know, like that. Because like every industry, you get different types of people. What it used to be the case is you were, you were mistrusted right. for it, particularly through management. And that, that could have been, and maybe it did hold you back sometimes. I, I have no evidence to say it did, but there may have been some managers that looked at me and thought, he talks about kind of airy fairy ideas about you know beauty and you know creativity, and, and he's wearing a berry. And I said, <laughs> not sure about that one, and that might have worked against you, but ain't that the case everywhere? I mean, it, 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 going back, you're talking about having a strong personality, but the interesting thing that you you mentioned there is knowing when to use it and knowing when not to use it and stuff like that. Did was that a conscious thing for you, or did it happen subconsciously where you would know, you know? St- keep quiet now on the on or off the pitch or even with a manager you're, you're mentioning managers there back then the hierarchy in football and we'll maybe talk about some of the managers that you've played under and maybe the differences that you'll see through ways that managers and leaders in football communicate with the players back when you were playing versus how they do it now but I mean that 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 level of self-awareness was that something that you had to work on or was were aware that you were like that or was it just something that came fairly naturally because of your upbringing you're a brilliant question, an absolutely fantastic question. One of the great things I've enjoyed about having written these books and done some interviews, the differences in questions that people ask is it's been amazing. And it's great because it makes me think as well. I'll be honest with you. Retrospectively, I'd like to say, yeah, I was doing a lot of chin stroke <laughs> thinking of how I should consider it. But in the moment, like most people, the thing that got me going with things that upset me or annoyed me are you know, I thought were unfair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just couldn't, cons- I couldn't put up with the concept of unfairness um, for whatever way it be. Now, famously, it was, you know, into racism or whatever, or, you know, anyone who was getting bullied for any reason at all, I just couldn't accept it. So I would suddenly, you know, become the Glaswegian again <laughs> after being the guy sitting reading Dostoevsky in the corner. 
Yeah. I mean, Jimmy Reed, you know. <laughs> and you, it's, it's like Superman outfit. <laughs> Here I come. Um, but it wasn't to, it was just because I couldn't accept it. And growing up, growing up, I suppose, again, West of Scotland, autodidactic, kind of Catholic, very, very small C, um, socialist kind of background of, you just, you're not bigoted. We didn't do bigotry. We're not bigoted against any group except bigots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's who, that, that's, and if someone was being maltreated, and obviously you're on the side of the, the wee guy as well, and mm-hmm. A, the underdog, but B, the oppressed. So whether, wherever that is, you know, surrounded you. So yeah, that would happen sometimes. Um, and it would always slightly shock, you know, you know, people, the others, footballers. But what I began to notice, by the way, I don't in any way look down on footballers. There's mm-hmm. massive respect for them to get to where they got to because you, you, I know what you have to do to get there. Um, but when, if I stand up and I have an argument with them, um, I'm comfortable. Yeah. I'm all right. <laughs> I, I know my argument and I'm pretty comfortable with it. And you're not going to shout me down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's now and again, yeah, I won't be shouting back, but I'll just be explaining it to people, you know, strictly. Um, so that's that's why it was kind of a wee bit easier, I think, is because I didn't try to pretend to be like them mm-hmm. all the time. I didn't, you know, I didn't try to be, pretend to be unlike them. You just be yourself. And I think from that, fairly quickly grows, and it's one of my least favourite words in football, by the way, I'm going to use it, a level of respect. And it's a, I hate that word. It actually hurts to say that word, right? And I'll tell you the reason why. And that sounds odd, doesn't it? Yeah. When you see a phrase like that. See, when I hear a footballer these days on like quarter a million quid a week, and he's he, he's, got, he's on the bench or whatever, and he goes, I'm not being shown enough respect around here. Uh. Honestly, I, I want to punch him. <laughs> Anybody else? I'm going, oh, shut up. You're, you're playing a game of football. It's a ball there. You're kicking it. You're entertaining people. And you're getting paid a lot of money for it. Get on with it. You know, I've, I've never, and I don't care who you are. Yeah. I don't care if you're Messi or Ronaldo or I don't care. That's not changed. And it's, again, that's a thing you grew up with. It's not a disrespect for high society or people who have achieved. It's a complete and utter ability and awareness that you treat every single person the same. Mm-hmm. Wherever they are, if you're a king or if you're somebody standing on the side of the street. Them up, you treat them exactly the same. So, whoever says that sort of phrase because they're uh, over pleased with themselves. But, uh, well, I hope, I hope I never hear you on Radio 5 Live and somebody that you're interviewing after the game mentions that they're not being respected, and I'll hear a big thump happening. There's a, there's a few of them, there's oh, some phrases. I, I, I do a bit of speaking now and again, and there's certain phrases that I kind of translate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite ones is. Keep an eye out for it. You know, you, um, if you ever hear anybody saying transition, right? <laughs> Which you will hear all the time in football. Oh, the transition. Oh, transition. It's transition. It. Do you know what that means? He gave the ball away again. <laughs> useless get. <laughs> well, I mean, the use of language, it is an interesting thing how you can how you can turn that uh, or try. And... I know. And, and the thing is, I've, I've always known jargon because you know, I study economics. It's jargon, yeah. psychology. There's a lot of jargon in there, a lot of good sense in there as well. But a lot of the times, <clears throat> any industry, 
They use jargon to make themselves sound clever, mm -hmm. right? And you get people in sport doing that as well. And I'm sitting there going, well, my attitude to English is always try and help people understand as opposed to stop people understanding. Yeah. So I tend not to use jargon. Well, I mean, it's interesting looking back then because it's, it's funny when you hear modern football and you've got someone like yourself who's played the game through the through the 70s, 80s, 90s and early 2000s and you'll have seen the trends changing and you'll have seen these things like the transition period or, or, or all these different things that are coming through, all these words. But when, when you go back to when you were in the changing rooms when as a young player, some of the managers that you'd played under, what influence did, had you taken that you've managed to carry on throughout your career from different characters who, who have maybe been either positive influences as managers or leaders on you or possibly negative influences of leaders and managers on you? What you tend to find is, um, in retrospect, retrospect, people say, oh, he was great, he did this, he did that. And you don't hear, quite often because a lot of these people are no, no longer with us, you don't hear the, the phrase, he was absolutely useless at that. He had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> he was terrible on that side of it. Because I have to tell you, some of them were. They weren't good managers. Um, some of them were just lucky to be there because they kicked the ball themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and they managed to go and get a good team together and tell them to run out and play. You know, but there were the others who were brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's the case with management um, in any area. I mean, it doesn't matter which area. You've not got any excuse for it in football now because there's, there's enough... You know, you can go on YouTube and learn the management. You can go and do courses on it. You should do courses on it. You should have good enough people around you. And there are very good ones. But isn't it the case that that's just humanity? Mm -hmm. um, I was very fortunate. Worked for a wee while under Jock Steen. You know, he wasn't bad. <laughs> he was unbelievable. But as a psychologist, incredible. Great technical knowledge of the game. Take it for granted. But the other side of it, being able to manipulate people, um, mostly in a positive way. Yeah. But some, if you ask, I think it was probably murder. He wouldn't have said the same. But there's uh, most would say, yeah, incredible. Sir Alec, you know, worked under him briefly as well. Interesting to watch his methodology. Mm -hmm. That's changed over the years. But I had other managers that uh, I called John Neal when I was at um, Chelsea, and he managed me the perfect way, which was let me wear my headphones up until five minutes before the game. And then say to the team, right, give the ball to Pat and you'll win. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like 20. Yeah. <laughs> Playing in the top division. And I was just a kid coming down from Scotland. And he knew, what, what was clever about that is he knew that wouldn't buckle me. Mm -hmm. Now, how did he know that? Because it's the easiest thing in the world to say, oh, he's clever. How do you know that's not going to buckle somebody? Because mm -hmm. the expected norm, if you've got a kid, is gently, you know, bring him in easy, don't take put too much pressure and put him in, bring him out. He just kind of spent a wee bit of time with me and thought, no, sort of send him in and put the pressure and just hammer it on. Because he said the thing to me, this that manager, and this is good knowledge, this isn't about me, this is about the manager. He took me, uh, he said to me, do you want to play a game of golf with him? I went, I've never played in a real course, being from East Africa. Yeah. Um, but I could have a ball. And he took me to St Andrews. My first ever shot in a golf course was the first hole at St Andrews. Really? The old course. And, uh, and of course I could hit the ball. But I was just about, there's a reason for this, we'll get back to it. Um, he took me, so we met up in St Andrews and he knew the starter. And uh, we were there an hour before 
tee off. And I went, oh, what are we going to go do for an hour? And he said, we're going to sit and watch people teeing off. Why? <laughs> and he goes, just watch. And he just watched all these Japanese and American businessmen, multi-millionaires, fine golfers. And the widest fairway in the world. Yeah. Duff it, slice it, just make a complete mess of it because we were scared to death. And then I walk up after him and just smack one up the middle. And he just said, you don't get nervous, do you? And I went, no. And he went, you've no idea how lucky you are. Yeah. Because the negative effect it has on a lot of people is, is incredible. And why, how did, would any other manager have noticed that? Mm -hmm. Some other managers didn't notice that. But, you know, it's not that he didn't care. He cared enough. So there's this weird dichotomy within every individual. Good managers are interested. Good managers learn about that from every different individual. And the very, very best ones know how to manipulate that and make it work for them. And good management, and we all th everyone thinks they can go and manage and run everything. But the, the, the least important thing with a manager that always jumps out to me with managers, the ones that it's about them. Mm. It's about them. And you just think, oh, you really aren't going to get this. <laughs> it's about the big I am. You, it's about what you can do with that lot there, mate. Yeah. And that's what I learned. So I have good ones and bad ones in them. I mean, it's interesting you're talking about, you mentioned the, the caring word there. I, I heard a really good podcast recently. It was with Scott McTominay, Scotland superstar, Manchester United midfielder, talking about his uh, his upbringing through Manchester United. And he, he, he explains, I can't remember the name of the youth coaches who, who tore him, absolutely tore him to pieces. And to the stage where even some of his own teammates were kind of saying like, that's out of order, they shouldn't speak to you like that sort of thing. But the thing was that the, the coaches also informed him either beforehand or had or even afterwards that they care and that's why they're doing it they're caring they, they want they're preparing you and there's care involved and i remember hearing another story and i can't remember the player's name you might be able to know because I, I don't know if it's been mentioned publicly and would have been on a radio show or something and it was the old jim mclean who you know he, he ruled with the iron fist whilst he was at dundee united um for a long time and he bumped into a former player who didn't get on with him at all um, they were constantly clashing through this former player's time as a youngster. I, uh, I could finish this sentence. With uh, <laughs> he says, oh, yeah, well, there you go. He asked him, why were you so hard on me? He says, because I cared. But the difference being was Scott McTominay talked about Jose Mourinho's influence on him and talked about these youth coaches. Scott McTominay knew that these guys were being hard on him because they cared and they wanted him to go as far as he possibly could. Whereas maybe at the time with the Jim McLean example, I, and I can't remember, you might be able to know who the former player was, I can't remember. But basically... Wouldn't you be surprised if it was Jim McNally, but carry on. But yeah, well, but the point is there, it's like, maybe if that player, had Jim maybe had known that Jim McLean was doing it because there was so much care there, he would have been more forgiving of the harshness that he was receiving, the, the treatment he was receiving. It's actually even more complicated than that, because um, I had one of those managers, and I had him for two years when I was a voice club player. And he made my life an absolute misery. Yeah. Shouting and bawling and screaming and the whole, you know, uh, the hairdryer, spit in your face, you name it. You're not deliberately spitting, you know, because yeah. you're so close to the spit. And absolutely made my life a misery. And I was trying, and I was, I, kind of the reason why I was get, I gave up football when I was 16, because I thought, I, I don't need this. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just doing it for the love of it. And I don't need this manager shouting and bawling and screaming and bawling and screaming and bawling and screaming. And it was, and at the end, when I was 16, I was like, oh, 
nah, I'm not going to do that. This is what it's all about. This guy doesn't understand. And at the end of the year thing, he, I walked up and I got the player of the year. Mm -hmm. Picked by him. And I went, what? Because <laughs> he says, I only shout to good players. There's no point in shouting the people that can't play. Mm -hmm. They can't help it. You can. I want to get you to be the best. You are going to go and have a phenomenal career in football, which I didn't believe or agree with. And he said, you are going to come across some people that are going to shout and scream and make your life a misery. You will cope with everything because of what I've just put you through. And that's why I did it. And I went, I couldn't believe you could have that much wisdom and knowledge and foresight. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, all right. And then later, when I eventually did fall accidentally into football, I did come across those people. And it was the total water off a duck's back. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'd been there. I'd done it. So that's very old school. For some people, it absolutely won't work. And the industry as it was at the time, it was good schooling. Mm -hmm. And I, I hated my tech. And there's, not, there's hardly a book out there that'll tell you, or psychology or psychiatry or management or any kind of book out there that will tell you that's a good method. But it helped me. Really, mm -hmm. really helped me. So Scott McTominay, similarly, you know, there, there are different styles, but you have to know underneath it that that person actually cares about your welfare as in the future. Mm -hmm. And if you think they diff but if they see if there are people who do that because they don't like you, that's different. Yeah, <laughs> shouting ball on screen because they don't like you, that's really different, and that's threatening and that's bullying and that's and it can have a terrible negative effect. Mm -hmm. and, and I've watched it having a negative effect on others. And the old school thinking was, yeah, you know, that time it's, it's a hard life in there, and this will, you know, sort out the wheat from the chaff, as they say. Um, <clears throat> Not sure that's absolutely the best way, and it certainly isn't the best way for creative people. Mm -hmm. But he knew that, and some managers have known. And I, Jock Steen did it to me as well. Yeah. He tried to find out um, how strong I was by putting me through that. And uh, once he started looking, going, like, yeah, right, okay. I'll show you. <laughs> but I mean, you mentioned like Jock Steen and Sir Alex Ferguson, is, is to, who would be seen as like what's funny about their. The, the perception that we maybe had from people looking into football from like myself's point of view as a supporter, these guys had that sort of authoritarian look about them. You mentioned about the hairdryer treatment, which was famously coined by sort of Man United players for Sir Alex Ferguson and things like that. But then when you hear players who have played under them and you hear the way that they talk and say about how, you know, yeah, it was hard. It was hard, but he also knew exactly how, like what you're saying about the manager at Chelsea, knew exactly how to get the best out of you, make you tick. So sometimes if he was giving you a bit of the boot up the backside, you knew it was for the right reasons. And then sometimes when he was putting the arm around the shoulder, it made you feel... I spoke to Neil Lennon um, uh, on a previous episode and he talked about Brian Clough, uh, Martin O'Neill talking about Brian Clough, and it was... Uh, Hug them when they think they're going to get a kick and kick them when they think they're going to get a hug. <laughs> Oversimplistic, but I, I see what they're The important thing is to know, and anyone listening in, especially anyone in that industry of, you know, sort of management and getting the best out of people, you'll be thinking, oh my God, you live in the dark ages. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's more complicated, it's much, much more complicated than that. These people who are good at it know the ones that can cope, know the ones that can't cope, yeah. know the ones that that will work for. And we'll test the waters. And, you know, the amount of times I've had people come up, ah, they terrible times in those days. They, they wouldn't know and understand how to treat players. Yeah, some of them were absolutely useless. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
but don't say that's the case with them all because I watched them closely. You know, I was such an outsider. I'd be in the, the corner and I'd be watching everything that was going on and thinking, I know what you're doing there. I know what you're doing yeah. there. I know why you're working with him. I know why you're working him against him. Um, and the very best people in management do all that and by the end of it, have a team. Mm. Now, there's other ways of doing it, which is make everyone feel cosy and cuddly and sweet and nice and, ah, yeah, kind of thing. Good luck with that in football. <laughs> really good luck winning things with that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, there is often a mistake about the holistic approach to coaching where it means that you can't be hard on people, but you can, there, there's still an element where, you know, in a leadership position, there always has to be hard, difficult conversations or and things like that. And I think that's... It is finding that right. You're absolutely right about finding that right balance. But I'm interested, what what took you in your career then to becoming the chairman of the PFA in England? Uh, it was quite a big jump. So I was, I was at Everton. I'd been at Chelsea for five years in Everton. And I'd been kind of dragged into the PFA and, and the management committee, mostly because I'd been, you know, a bit, I call them mouthy, but I wasn't mouthy. I was just <laughs> saying what had to be said about the problems within racism within the mm -hmm. game. Not within the game, but in the terraces mostly, um, as it was then. But other things that were coming up, you know, if I thought there was, um, you know, players were maltreated or whatever, you know, pitch surfaces or whatever, because remember, they were absolutely yeah. awful. Um, you know, which is kind of hard for a player like me, you know, you quite like not to be playing on the moon. Um, so, you, you, <clears throat> but I'd say in a way, and the chairman of the, the, the chief executive of the union, Gordon Taylor, uh, he said he'd noticed this. And he, they're always looking for people that come on the management committee. Mm -hmm. So he got, got me to come on. I didn't want to, but he got me to come on. And then when I was, uh, you know, well into my career, that's later stages of my career, um, you're at an age then where, you know, someone's got to be chairman of the union. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, I'd been on the management committee. It's an unpaid post. Um, and you just, I'm a union man at heart, simple, you know, um, you want to help others. The game had been good to me. Um, so when I was asked to come on in the management committee, but then, uh, they had a new chairman coming up they needed a new chairman and I did not want to do it hundred percent accidental chairman once again. <laughs> so they had a vote with the management committee to which I didn't want to put my hat in the ring, but there was only one other person who put his hat in the ring. And it came to me last, and Gordon Taylor said, we need another candidate. And I went, because you need a vote. And I'm like, All right, then. So I won at 11-1. <laughs> like, I'm not wanting this. And it's, but having been given it, it's an honour, yep. especially Scott, you know, being English chairman, chairman of the English PFA. Um, but also it was a massive job, a learning curve about, you know, how football works, the inside of it the structure of all the different organizations within it. Um, the fact that you have to do a lot of PR. And uh, infamously there was, during my reign, uh, Eric Cantona decided to drop kick a supporter at Selhurst Park, Chris, Crystal Palace. And I'm the, I'm the guy I have to stand in front and you know, defend the indefensible. Yeah. Which is, you know, hey, I don't want to do it because you, you're nuts, mate. <laughs> but I have to explain why it would happen. Um, but there was a lot to learn in that period of time. But the most important thing was um, it was the start of the Premier League. Mm -hmm. We were trying to change all the rules. Um, at this point in time, I'm obviously for the workers. Um, 
and you can change the rules, but we're going to not we're not going to lose, you know, what we have worked hard for over the years, you know, and certain things like their pensions and a, a, a whole variety of different things we had to fight over contracts, where the contracts were worked. I will not bore you with it. Um, so I was quite happy to kind of be in the forefront of, of that along with uh, Gordon Taylor. We had a couple of strike ballots in that period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it became quite high profile. Considering where the Premier League is now and what it started as, and it's quite funny now, you hear everyone shouting and bawling about how angry they are with the Super League, right? Yeah. That's what the Premier League done. <laughs> yeah. And we were going, well, if you're going to take over, you better, you need to take us with you. And yeah. by the way, we don't want to lose anything that. <clears throat> there are times when I think maybe we fought a wee bit too well. I think the footballs are quite well turned. Well, when you look when you look at your old club Chelsea now, and, and you see what happened when Roman Abramovich came in, and and that really sort <clears> of, you know, when football, when you look at the historical points in football, and you look at Chelsea was the kind of first of the billionaire owners coming in and just wiping the floor with incredible transfer fees and also payments to players and things like that so i mean from a from, from the side of the workers as you as you were when in your pfa days what's your thoughts on that when it was starting to happen right there's two different and uh two different thoughts natures that run parallel the first one is i can't there was no way i would say anybody's value of a quarter of a million or half a million a week i just i don't care if you're messy yeah it doesn't matter I, I, nobody's buried at that when the doctors and the nurses and the teachers and whatever aren't getting paid, they're paid. That's there, that's given, that I accept. And we live in a capitalist society, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm happy to partake, partake in. I would prefer that to the other versions. And then in that, if you're in an industry that makes a lot of money, which football does, who should be rewarded most? The businessmen, the it should really be the people that do it. Yeah, really. yeah. So if you're going to pay anybody, if there's a huge amount of money swelling about in there, the money could, should go to the people that are actually doing the, the creation, the work to get there, the thing yeah. that everybody wants to see. So, and it, for whatever, you know, and, and I'm, that's not me saying they deserve the, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds over their I'm not saying that. I'm saying if the money's going to go anywhere and it's all swelling about, that's the people to give it to because yeah. they're the ones that are creating it. Um, but it's, it's a, I can understand that's a really un, unacceptable argument for a lot of people, and I would, I would, I would kind of bow to them their kind of feelings that it just doesn't make any sense at all. I think if they had a wage cap, I wouldn't argue against it. Mm-hmm. Um, even as union chairman, I don't think I'd have argued against it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but it's a it's a it's a difficult one. But the game is growing. I got to see I'm, as I talk to you now and struggle with my throat. Um, I'm going through three games next week. Yeah. Villa, I'm down at Villa, I'm at Newcastle, and uh, I should really, oh, I'm at Liverpool. So I've got three games a week. I'm going to recover it. And they'll, they'll be brilliant players playing there. Oh, yeah. Absolutely phenomenal players playing there. And whatever you say, and a lot of people say they don't like it. I have to. My throat's tickled. I've talked too much. My um, I know why some people don't like watching English football, diving about and all that sort of stuff. But in actual fact, it's a product. It's pretty good. Oh, aye. 
sells incredibly well around the world. And I go to a lot of games, and some of them are, it has to be said, pretty brilliant. Um, I can imagine. I mean, it's interesting that the PFA side of things is such an area of football that a lot of fans don't get an insight into. And it's things like what you've just said there, when you mentioned about the Eric Cantona incident, and as the chairman, and as the person who's meant to be on the side of the players, you've got to stand up. I mean, when it comes to even finding out, that even just with the other issues that are happening, preparing your message and making that message clear and how you go about ensuring that you don't contradict yourself, you don't trip yourselves up. Because when it's a situation like the Cantona one, I mean, even to this day, you look back at the 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 high profile of what that situation actually was, the media attention that you're getting. I mean, how much media training had you even had before that? And yet you're having to stand out in front of all the press as, as on the side of a player who's done something that no one else had ever seen happen before. Right. Let me see how much media training that. None. <laughs> um, <laughs> absolutely none. Um, <clears throat> but the, the best I'd had media training was the debating society at school. <laughs> so it's not a lot. Um, with something like that, Gordon Taylor and I would talk mm-hmm. for a wee while, usually on the phone. Only three people on that phone call, uh, myself, Gordon, and the news of the world, obviously, listening in. Um, <laughs> which we didn't know about. By the way, that's not a joke. It's really? So, okay. Yeah, yeah. They were, I got a phone call from the police years and years and years later saying... <clears throat> Should, do you know, and it was the journalist who'd done most of the hacking, do you know his name? And he should he have your phone number? And I went, no. And he says, well, your number's on his lists. Wow. Gordon Taylor's. So they were, maybe they were just stealing this, the kind of voice messages. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <clears throat> I just felt sorry for the guy because that's such a boring life. So <clears throat> there are certain things that when you have to talk about them, um, it's good to have a chat with someone beforehand someone knowledgeable um, who understands it, who you can bounce ideas off. Certainly with Gordon Taylor, that happened now and again, mm-hmm. but only really with the, the biggest, most important ones. Generally, um, <clears throat> you kind of have to know the subject. If you know the subject and you're comfortable with the subject and you know your argument and debate, now and again you'll find yourself, and this is the honest tricky part, and again I talk about this quite a lot in the second book, um, you can't give everything. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, my attitude, when you start to ask that question, the attitude is, see if you tell the truth, you're all right. <laughs> you don't have, you have to worry about it. But let's be absolutely honest about it. Now and again, you can't give everything because yeah. it'll put somebody else in a difficult position or a hard position. There was one of the arguments that I made in the book that I tried to explain to people when I was chief, chief executive of Motherwell, and, uh, the goalkeeper, the, now sadly departed Andy Gorham, um, he'd been pictured in front of a UVF flag. Yeah. This was back page and front page news for weeks. And I was the one that had to stand up in front of the press every single day and say, no, we're not going to sack him. He, he argues that he didn't know that banner was behind him. Um, and he was under massive, massive pressure. I was getting bombarded with all sorts of questions. You can imagine this, the difficulty of that in the Scottish society. Yeah. It's incredible, you know, absolutely incredible. And it, people think you say front and back page and then that kind of washes off. Trust me, that's the biggest, that's the most incredible pressure. 
you you command that. And I just thought, no, just have to keep it straight. Yeah. But, uh, as it is. But I couldn't always give away everything. There was one particular thing, moment, and this is, I, I write about this because it's, it's I think it's a very good case study. Um, he didn't want to play in the next game, the goalkeeper. Guess who the next game was against? Correct. Yeah. Celtic. And, <laughs> and there'd been a death threat from the RA. And I remember saying to him, like, you, you know, mate, you're going to have to play against them anyway. You know, there's, there's probably not a sniper in the crowd. And he went, yeah, that probably is kind of hanging in the air a wee bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, but, I mean, I'm out there as well, and I'm arguing, you know, I'm the one that's standing up and saying we're not going to sack you, though. you know. So I'm out in the pitch too, because I was player chief exec. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you're not right. <laughs> You're running about. You're, ha- <laughs> <laughs> you're not standing on the goal, exactly. <laughs> right in front of them all. But the the point about it, I was, I'd say to the pressman, look, he wouldn't play in that game. He refused to play in that game. And uh, myself, the chief exec, and him, the manager, and the chairman, we had a meeting. All three of us thought he should play. He didn't want it, but he was under great psychological pressure. Um, I mean, he was breaking. He was mm-hmm. cracking at that point in time. And uh, I said to the press, look, we've had a big meeting, uh, four of us, and he's decided he won't play. And the press went the next day and said, um, the, the manager, uh, who was Billy Davis at the time, said, has said that Gorham can't play. No, I didn't say, who said that? <sighs> I hadn't given the whole story, but I'd given the story of four of us had met, yep. and it was decided. Now, I didn't say, three of us wanted my play and the goalie didn't because I didn't want to put him under pressure mm-hmm. any more than he was under. So I got the press in the next day and I said, look, harsh on the manager that can't say that. I said to you, it was four years of the meeting and you have taken from that that the manager refused to let him play. It's not that. Um, and I said, and afterwards I said, look, can you turn the microphones off? I want to explain to you what happened. So they turned the microphones off and I said, look, I basically didn't, I've told you the truth, but I haven't told you everything. And the, the bit I haven't told you is, it was a goalie who didn't want to play. He was in massive mental pressure. He said death threats against him. I was just trying to secure the guy, save the guy a wee bit. Okay, mm-hmm. now again, you can't tell you everything. I'm telling you off the record now, because so you understand and know, and don't have a dig at the manager for dropping him. It's not that. <laughs> Next day's headline, Nevin admits to being a liar. <laughs> <laughs> and... And there's this real moment of you think absolute honesty is the right thing all the time. Yeah. And it is good. You should be. Don't lie. But when you're communicating, you have to understand the levels you can communicate to sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now, the vast, vast majority of the time I found with the PFA, with my job as a footballer, and with the job as chief executive, is really easy. Just tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> tell the truth. I mean, but there are curtains when you have to not manipulate truth. You cannot give everything. And that's just life. You find that in your own life. You know, your sister and your brother might be arguing about something and you know both sides of it. You can't give everything because they'll, they'll follow it further. Yeah. You know? You moved on from England. You came back up to Scotland and you were playing at Kilmarnock and having a great time. But then an opportunity arose when uh, you got given an opportunity to become, what was it, a player chief executive. Now, you might know better than me. I've tried to look this up and research it. I don't know how much, if if there's anybody else in the world of European football, world football, I don't know, 
that's ever been in a position where they've been a player and the chief executive of a football club, particularly no, at I, an elite level. No, I don't think so. I think it was a first. Um, uh, the reason why it doesn't happen is because bordering on impossible to do. <laughs> <laughs> which which you discuss in your book as well. You yeah. hear about the trials and tribulations of doing that. It's incredible. Yeah. But and, and there's, see, the reason why I was happy to do number one, to get in the correct order, I wasn't offered chief executive player. I was offered to go and run the club. And if, if the manager wanted me to keep on playing, then I'll keep on playing. Right. And what role that would be, chief executive, chair, you know, <clears throat> could be anything. And it just so happened that that's the role that kind of rolled up. Um, it's like, <clears throat> I'm just as terrible. It's not, not something that often happens to me. I had a bit of a cold recently. Right. <laughs> so, um, the kind of the role kind of developed and for the first month and uh, John Bell had bought the club, didn't know a great deal about football. I'd worked in the industry quite a long time. And I said, Well, I'll oversee the club and tell you what you need to watch out for. Um so it was a kind of weird one to go into. The f the actual continuity of playing was very much down to the manager and the dressing room. Yeah. If you want me there, you want me there. If you don't, just say no. Now I can sack you if you sack me, <laughs> but I won't because I'm just there. If I'm, if I'm of any use, I'm there. Mm -hmm. um, and he used me a bit the first couple of years, but not huge amounts. And I played quite a bit and I trained every day. But it was quite a... It kept, it kept being doable because the players liked, hopefully liked me. Mm -hmm. um, decent amount of respect between us, friendship, as in a professional level of respect, not anymore. <laughs> um, and understanding they knew there was a particular moment with the centre forward John Spencer came in big big character and in the first week in the dressing room I'm sitting there and he absolutely caned me <laughs> out of me for what I was wearing just, just football banter yeah. right? to which I'd had all my life absolute waters of ducks but don't care <laughs> In fact, quite like it. Right? Yeah. And he saved me. Because other players were going, oh my God, he's, he's not to the chief executive. <laughs> and I'm sitting there laughing and giving it back. And to be honest, it's a complete saviour. Yeah. Everyone in the dressing room then got it. And they went, oh, so he's, he's one of us here. We can say anything to him. Yes, you can. Doesn't matter. How, how did that... Sorry, but how did that work then on the other side then when you came when it came to negotiating contracts or even having to let people go and tell people that, you know, there's there's no no room for them at the football club anymore, particularly trying to create that you had to be on one you had to put put one hat on where I'm I'm teammate and I'm one of the boys in the changing rooms, can take the banter. Then when you've got your shirt and tie on and you're <laughs> behind the desk you've got to be the person that says, I'm afraid that there's, you know, there, there might be a player that you've ha probably had to have conversations with you said, we don't have a space for you here anymore. Right, well, um, you mentioned right at the top that the, but the only job I didn't do was club manager. Yeah. The reason for that, I never thought I'd be any good at it and I didn't like those conversations. Okay. I didn't want to be the one who said, you, you're going, your career's finished, you kid that are coming through that have dreamt of it, I'm kicking you out. Mm -hmm. It's not, I wouldn't be, not great at it. Could do it, but would hate it. And it would destroy me. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want that. That's a manager's job. 
to do that most of the time. That's his, that's his coach. He, he's making decisions. I'm not making any of them. So there's no point in asking me to go and do that with a young player because mm-hmm. I'm not making a decision. Talk to the manager. He's made a decision. But talking to somebody about new contracts, then then I've got a, a delicacy of it. But I will talk with the manager and we will decide what we think that player is worth. If he wants more than that and it's over what we feel we can pay him, goodbye. Yeah. So can't keep you. Um, so there's all that sort of stuff in theory works. In theory. <laughs> but it's not like that at all. And eventually there there comes problems. And it's the one of the great bits, my favorite bits of the book is I have a meeting where we're in Lanzarote or something. And I say to all the players, look, it's about a bad feeling going around here. And I'm going to be in my room tonight at seven o'clock. Just come around and talk to me. Just everything's, you know, just absolutely off the record. Just come into my room and speak to me face to face. Whatever you say doesn't come outside those walls. I want to find out what the problems are. And honestly, see the next few pages. <laughs> Things that were said in that room. Man. Yeah. Well, a lot of them illegal. I couldn't, they wouldn't have passed a lot book anyway. But, <laughs> and it showed, and at that point in time, I, I thought, actually, it's no longer possible to actually do the two jobs together now. I would still say that I had a fantastic relationship with the vast number of players. Mm-hmm. I would still call a lot of them friends. Yeah. And to this day, because I was honest with them. And if they came to me and and I'd just say, look, we can't afford that. Mm-hmm. Or manager doesn't rate you. <clears throat> and that's, you just get it. Just give you it between the eyes. It's amazing within football, maybe other industries as well. You'd rather be told that. Yeah. The truth. And not everyone takes it well. And some people will say it's an agenda and all the rest of that. They'll go into that. You, that's just life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See if you stick at that point in time. But then again, there come points in business and where there is no good outcome. Yeah, there's two losses, and you take the best case loss. People often say, "I'm not sure I take the best case loss. I'm never sure I ever did. I just went the honest track. Yeah, straightforward track, um, and just say, look, okay." It might be nice if I go and sugarcoat this and you might be nice about me and the press and the club and all that stuff. And if I tell you the truth, you might have a wee dig. I'll just tell you the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's football being such an emo- emotional and emotive topic as well. When you're a player and then you're the chief executive as well. It's actually, it's former Motherwell chief executive, Alan Burrows. I remember hearing him talking about... Um, after Motherwell had suffered a particularly bad result in the early stages of the Europa Conference League, I think it was. And uh, it was the manager, Graham Alexander. And Alan Burrows was in the press very quick afterwards. He was live on the radio and he he mentioned about how he said, as a rule, the board make a decision not to talk about knee-jerk reactions immediately after the game. Mm -hmm. So, because sometimes you you could be in that situation where you're, absolutely livid with what's happened and you might not be thinking straight you've got a rush of blood to the head and and you can suddenly make a decision that we're going to get rid of a manager and suddenly that that could spiral a whole whole list of other things when you're a player and you've been playing and then you've got a manager who you're maybe having strange relationships 
a strained relationship either between player manager or chief executive manager. How difficult was it to try and keep that level head so that you were able to make the right decision for the football club as a chief executive and not as an individual as Pat Nevin? Uh, not slightly troublesome at all. Right. And no way troublesome, no way difficult. Because I, I had no ideal of how I wanted to be seen. So I had no thought of, all right, how, how will this affect me? Mm -hmm. no, I'm not interested. I don't really I care about how people see me from the outside. I've got a job to do. Mm -hmm. Do the job correctly. So how it would affect you? I think I can remember once and in 20 odd years, now 25 years of um, working with the industry, where I thought to myself, actually, I lost it a wee bit there. Okay. You know, after a game. Um, and I was delighted that I did. <laughs> <laughs> and that was when I was shouting and bawling at people for being racist towards yeah. one of my players. And that was it. That's in an entire career, that was it. Mm. All the other times, wherever the stresses are, pressures are, you have to be strategic. Yeah. You must be. You must be able to be above it and say, this feels like the end of the world right now, particularly for the players, and there's mayhem going on. It'll, it'll look different tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. That's a better time to talk about it. And if you talk about it after the game, you have to be just reasonable and sensible. You know that the media have got an agenda mm -hmm. to sell their newspapers. There's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. So if that means they're going to be writing about sacked in the morning, they can write about being sacked in the morning. But they ain't going to get it from me. <laughs> <laughs> If what they're going to get from me is a reasoned overview of a period of time and a wait and see. Whatever happens, it will not be affected by the stresses of what you write, what some fans say in the short term, but I will listen to them in the long term mm -hmm. <clears throat> because you shouldn't do that. I'm not there to do that. If you put fa any fans in, fans, I love fans, but they'll sack a manager every two weeks and you'll be... <laughs> That's just what it's like being a fan. You're allowed to do that. That's yeah. fine. That's what you should be. You should care and you should be passionate. But that's not what you should be if you're a strategic leader. So no, I, I have to say, all those pressures, <laughs> and they, they weren't particularly difficult, no. I, I didn't find them difficult. Um, and I think that used to drive the press guys mad. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you've mentioned the fans, you've mentioned their voice. We've talked a lot about the communication that you've had between as a player and managers, other players, when you worked with the PFA. But one of the things as a chief executive, you're not just dealing with communicating with the manager and the other players, the coaching staff, the owner, but you're also having to speak to the fans. And you've met, you talked about giving the truth but not being able to give the whole truth and all this kind of stuff. How difficult is that particularly? And you've also mentioned the fans sometimes think it could be the end of the world and stuff like that. For Motherwell at a time when you were when you were there, for a lot of supporters, it felt like the end of the world where they went through that administration period, which, I mean, there's a photo in the book of you with your head in your hands and you just look absolutely drained and exhausted after that whole process that you'd gone through. I'm a football fan myself. It's the worst fear you ever get if you if you start to think that your football club is going to go through some financial difficulties and there's administration uncertainty around the corner. How can you cope with that when you're in a position where you're the person having to make decisions but then also communicate constantly to the press and the, the stakeholders what's happening 
and how you're how you're doing things to keep things moving. The reason why that particular photograph, which I demanded, was put in the book, um, it was me that found that photograph and wanted to put it in, was to show even someone who's quite level-headed, mm-hmm. even someone who's controlled of the vast majority of the time, stresses can get you down and they can really push you. Stress is lack of control, generally, right, of a situation. And at that point in time, I had just left my, I'd just resigned half an hour before that. And I was out there and I wasn't, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't worrying about the club. <laughs> Sounds hard, doesn't it? Mm. And yet the club's going to be fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had a buyer. I had yeah. somebody come in and buy it. <laughs> that was all right. I was worried about the people inside there. Mm-hmm. People, um, the fans will be fine as well because it's all right. The club's going to survive. I know that. Because it didn't, it didn't make business sense to let the club fold. Mm-hmm. Because it was a buyer, it had value. There had young players that would come through that I'd explained to them had massive value. There was also the stadium, which had value. Look, it's not a business that's going to go at the wall. That's just not how business works, right? The fans couldn't quite get that because they were getting hammered with all this stuff in the press. Um, so the, it goes to the administration, which I disagreed with. Hence, it resigned. But I didn't care all about greatly about that because it wasn't because I would incorrectly I I was right <laughs> of course I was right because I knew what was happening <laughs> but what I did care for was the possible losing the jobs mm-hmm. and the people inside there who would be because of this administration laid off and I'd fought so hard to cut the costs get it back down to a more reasonable level for two years solid and after all that work. They were still going to lose their jobs, some of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, players, but I mean, I felt the same for the players as it did for the the cleaners. No yeah. different, just exactly the same. You know, even though they're earning that and they're earning that, they don't have any particular. Because if, if, if people in the, I asked some questions afterwards by media and they were going, oh, would you feel for the players? And I'm, I was a wee bit annoyed. Why are you not asking about the other stuff? Yeah. It just as important. They have jobs that is important to them. So at that point in time, eh, I'm no longer working for the club. I've resigned. And at that point in time, it's difficult because you are talking to, yes, the press. Uh, I'm not trying to sell myself in any way. I've just said, look, I disagree with the administration. I don't think it should have happened. Could have done something else. I understand why they've done it. Not particularly angry with them at doing it, but we see things in a different way, hence I will leave. Um, <clears throat> but I'm upset because um, I've worked really hard and I've tried to do the best and I've cut the costs and I've tried to save these people's jobs. And I'm upset that that looks like that's going to happen. And I think what the press were expecting was a big fight. Mm. Start abusing everybody and how dare they treat me like that. I didn't think like that. No. I wasn't, I just don't think like that. So the press actually just left me alone. <laughs> it's just weird. And they've been all over us for like these four years. And then when I expected this avalanche of stuff, they really called. And I went, yeah, fair enough, I'll move on. And was, I did. What was that? <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's, it's a kind of, it sounds almost heartless, but it wasn't. This, there comes a point in life where you could go and, worry yourself and beat yourself up and concern yourself and chase it 
see, it's, it's that famous quote of, you know, the wisdom to know when you can and can't do the things and when to leave go. You need to know when, actually, I can't do anything about that. Yeah. So if I can sit and worry about it all the time, I'll try, if anyone comes to me help, I'll, I'll do it. I used to be chairman of the PFA. I'll get some help for you. I'll pass on. I'll be a referee. I'll do all that sort of stuff. I didn't give you a reference. Yeah. Not <laughs> Never do that. Um, Arthur, you talk about my job being hard. Uh, so, you know, it's it's, it's one of the big things I often say about football players. Uh, lots of things about them impressed me in the 19 years that I was a professional. The thing that impressed me most was, and it's the thing that I learned to do quite quickly when I was doing it, was compartmentalise to a level people would just not understand. You know, if you go into work and you've lost a parent, mm -hmm. everyone knows. Because you know, you, you know what you're going through. You know the trauma. I've lost both mine, I know the trauma. Football, they come in and play the next day. Yeah. They you know, they, they would come in and play. And maybe less so now, but then compartmentalised for that period of time. So you learn these abilities to compartmentalise, because see if you don't, it will drive you nuts. Mm -hmm. That's my slight worry about modern footballers, they don't compartmentalise enough because they're looking at their social media all the time and they're selling their brand all the time and you know, get away from it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> got to get away from it, you've got to have that other life so that it gives you a respite from that. So I was able to compartmentalise it to quite an extraordinary level and it had to be extraordinary at that time. But even so, it was, yes, incredibly stressful near the end. I mean, it's that, like I say, that picture kind of sums it up, but the, the chapters and the pages that lead up to it and then the crescendo of, and of course, being a Scottish football fan, I know and I remember it happening, but I couldn't, you know, you didn't know the ins and outs, not a Motherwell fan, so there'll be Motherwell supporters who will probably, even reading that, will have had some... An insight that they, they didn't even know was they happening at the clue. time. No, they wouldn't have a clue. It was never, they, they, they have no idea of that. That's not because they're ignorant. The story was just never told. Yeah. and But the, one of the words I've written down here, which is, you know, is trust. And when you're a football fan and you have new owners and you have chief executives who are running the club, you tr as a football fan, you trust them. There's a lot of trust put on their shoulders that they're going to do the right thing and they're going to see the club in the right way and they're going to carry it on. And then when you're inside the club, you've got, you mentioned about how you didn't like having these difficult conversations and, and having these issues, which is why you maybe didn't verge into the management side, but you've got to trust then the manager that you've employed yeah. to, to be able to create the results. Because there is a chain where we see it all the time in football, isn't it? It's the manager gets it first. And then once the manager's had it from the fans, it then moves into the board, sack, you know, sack the manager, sack to the morning, and then it's sack the board. And it just goes through and then the players sort of start or the last ones to sort of get it. But you all, that, that level of trust that has to run right the way through the organisation. And when you talk about the ownership with, with John Boyle there, he's the guy that's the owner of the football club. So you've got an element, he's, you've got to trust him, but he's got to trust you. And then there's the manager that you've got to trust, but he's got to trust you as well. How difficult was that dynamic? Dynamics. Dynamics, <laughs> those dynamics, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, I kind of tried to manage them in a, a very unusual way. And so uh, the manage, the, managing them up to the owner was quite simple. Trust is absolutely important here. Um, I don't want to work for you if I don't trust you, mm -hmm. right? And you shouldn't want me to work for you. So here's an idea. Don't give me a contract. Yeah. Just when, the moment you don't want me to work here anymore, 
ask just say do you mind leaving and I'll walk out the door and I will not look back that day and similarly if I don't trust you anymore I'll do the same mm-hmm. I'll just say, actually I've had enough I'll walk out there's no contract there's no legal stuff there's nothing nothing no, there's not many executives that do that, is there? No. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I was in the position to be able to do it because I'd been a footballer for a while. Not not very, very wealthy. I still had to work. But I could manage for a while after that. So the trust up's not a problem. I will say to him, look, I'm only going to try and do my best for you here if you don't like what I'm doing. So that's simple. That's quite simple, actually. I, I, for me, it looks simple, right, from where I'm standing. It's an unusual position. I know but I've been in the job, I've been in football for a while. I know I'm unusual for the positions <laughs> I take, right? But it felt comfortable. The managing down towards the, the manager, I would say it felt more like managing across most of the time, but I, I, I accepted that I had control over whether he kept his job or not. So yeah. yes, I was to that degree managing down to some degree. And I just, just told him the truth. I've given you the job as, as long as you're doing really, really well, fairly well in it under the circumstances that you're put under, which is a very important caveat, it'll be fine. But we all know one day you're going to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, one day either you're going to be poached because you're doing brilliantly, or you're going to be doing badly and I'm going to have to let you go. Yeah. Let's have it out there. <laughs> it's, it's there. It's, you know, it's a, you're not going to be manager for 40 years. It may well be that I leave before you, but that's the situation. Yeah. Just not be straight with it. And that sounds is so incredibly honest and open and straight, yeah. If only life just kept that simple. Because <laughs> it doesn't. However, and that's one of the big things I learned in the period because you get personalities. And personalities take things personally. Yeah. And managing those personalities was the thing. So even though to this day, I mean, the, the relationship with the, the manager, Billy Davis, at the time when he left, there's in the book, there's a really interesting thing because when he left, the feeling was very, very bad. Yeah. Very, very bad by that point in time. I felt it shouldn't be bad between Billy and I, but he probably disagrees. Mm-hmm. But that's what I felt. And then the new manager comes in, Eric Black. And there's this joyous little rebirth. And it's just a the difference, good management and positivity there in a place. And the thing just flourished again. So I learned something really important at that point in time that, you know, the manager previously had been doing, he was a very, very good technical manager. Yeah. Really, and still is. Yeah. And it showed that later. But there's more to it than that. Yeah. There is a lot more to it than that. You you have to manage all the way through the organization. And the biggest difficulty wasn't my relationships towards the chairman, towards the manager, towards the players, towards the fans. That wasn't it. The biggest problem was manager to chairman. And that was it. That was, and board. Yeah. That's, that was a difficult. And I would, I spent a lot of time trying to manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, are you explaining like the communication between the manager and the board when you're the person in the middle that's got to relay on the... the... I have full understanding of both sides. Yeah. And it kind of, it's a bit like who I am really. <clears throat> if you go and ask me, go about the... You know, Israel Gaza mm-hmm. at the moment. I'll hopefully give you a good uh, sort of argument for both sides. Explain why they're both thinking the way they're thinking. Yeah. Because if you only ever see one side of an argument, your manager or towards a chairman, 
you know, yeah, that's that's useless. That's yeah. not helpful. You must see and understand. And if you're in a position of controlling things, if you're not trying to understand everyone's position, and then not saying you're right, you're wrong, but then saying we need to go that route, mm -hmm. there's a very big difference between that. And I always understood that as a, a comfortable way to be. It doesn't mean everything's going to be chosen correctly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean everyone's going to walk out happy because if you end up leaving the club or leaving your job, you'll be unhappy. Of course. Because you'll feel as it. But you have to see a bigger picture. You have to understand what's going to be best for the structure of the organization, uh, organization to do that. So when you ask, how did I manage that? As best I could with an honest friendly sometimes mm -hmm. light-hearted most of the time but if you had to be strong it wasn't about shouting and bothering people it was just looking them straight in the eye and saying right this is the situation and just giving it i mean it's interesting about like the the side of empathy and validation when it comes to listening to people and being able to because that's a, that's a big thing isn't it you i mean you'd played the game so you had that understanding from the players perspective and the, and would understand it more from the management perspective but also being in the different camp where you're on the business side of the football club as well it's not always that easy but i think um you know being able to listen and understand from both sides as you've as you've said in the argument is something that a lot of people it's very difficult to actually come across, isn't it? it where mm. it, it, everything can be very polarised on one side and not have the... And again, on the side that you've mentioned earlier on as well, about knowing the truth, saying the truth, but not saying too much of the truth in some circumstances where it yeah. could exacerbate situations. Exactly, and you have, to, you have to have the knowledge of that. And the knowledge of that only comes when you're listening, when you're looking, and it's not all about you. Mm -hmm. It's all about them. It's all about the bigger picture for everyone. Um, because I wasn't trying to um, get a big long career in that industry, I didn't want to do it for long. It took John Bell a long time to talk me into doing the job. I didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Other things I'd rather have done. Um, complicated reasons why I did it. It's all in the book. I won't bore you with it. But um, in the end, because I was not in a position of trying to get all this greasy pole, pole I, I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. I was able to stand and have a kind of moralistic inverted commas attitude towards it maybe harder if I was thinking I need to get to the top I'm one of these people that's my personality maybe that's harder maybe I couldn't have done that if I had that personality but I didn't have that personality my personality is you're doing a job for a while you're part of a team you do the best for the team mm -hmm. you know it, it sounds really simple but if you do that and by the way if the best thing for the team is for me to go then I'll, I'll go I'll just go I'll just walk yeah. I what I had certainly in the last year of my period of time in Motherwell was I was organised my exit strategy. Yeah. And you who I wanted to replace me. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not about clinging on, clinging on, clinging on. Okay, you've done your bit, move. Yeah. If it's the right thing to do for everybody, including yourself and your family, you do that. There's another thing, and this is where it gets kind of a wee bit complicated. You talk about the empathy. Hopefully... Not hopefully, you are empathetic towards other people, certainly those that deserve it as well, mm -hmm. as much as more than anything else. I actually had this other thing which really helped me. You know, I've told you before, I didn't never suffer from nervousness, never worried about that sort of thing, just didn't get to me, never, you know, mostly because I used to tell people, I know I'm an arse, you don't need to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> So it's okay. I don't think that highly of myself. I know how ridiculous I 
can come across and fail. So it's okay. I'm fine with that. <clears throat> the other thing is, I don't care what people say about me. <laughs> yeah. And it's a weird thing because, you know, I, 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 here's a classic example, which works to this day. I don't do a lot of social media. For, 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 the only reason I did it was selling the books. Yeah. You know, fair enough. I'll hand up. That's why I did it. So, you know, and I, and I was open about it. Um, but if you're on social media, you'll get abuse. And you'll get people saying things that are untrue and unfair and all the rest of it. See, when I get one, oh, shit, to my wife, to my wife, Annabelle, come on, that's a cracker. <laughs> See, that's one. <laughs> we sit there and howl and laugh at this fury of anger on the phone. Yeah. And there's been times, because I can always tell what team people support by their, their handle. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... There's times that honestly, there's teams, tears streaming down my face at the fury and righteous angle that's heading towards you. It's just bigotry. They don't know you. Yeah. They don't. They just they want to hate you, and it's not you they hate. It's it's this kind of vision of you that they've got, and I know that because I've worked inside these industries with famous people and lots of my friends are actors or musicians or whatever, and you get people going, "I hate that person." And I'm thinking, "Well, you don't know them. I do." He's lovely. Yeah. You, you, you've just taken this media thing of how they're seen. And that's what we do. So if I don't take the kind of, when people say you're wonderful, you're fantastic, I don't take that seriously. Mm -hmm. I never have. I can't take the other side too seriously when it's the vicious, stupid, daft, made up nonsense you yeah. get as well. So I actually always had that. So in the midst of it all, when you're talking about communication, how people react to you and all the rest of it, yes, you're empathetic towards, towards us, but you actually just laugh at yourself. A bit that of self-deprecation kind of self now. Yeah, you just don't take yourself that seriously. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel that way about people close to me. Mm -hmm. I feel very upset if people with my wife thought I was a complete idiot. I would be <laughs> upset about that or my family or my close friends were angry with but. That's the people that know you. That's the people you care. You should yeah. be care, really care about because they know you. They don't know the famous interpretation of what you're, who you are supposed to be. Um, so I always kind of knew that, that they were almost two different people. Right. The one that's there is not a real one that they see. They just see a kind of caricature. Well, I mean, moving on from Motherwell then and on to your media career, I'm interested, did you have the same contract negotiations with the BBC where you didn't have a contract with them as you did with, with John Boyle at Motherwell? Or do you, do you get yes. your... <laughs> yes. No, I, I very much um, did that with most of them. Aye. I stepped off with Channel 5. Yeah. Um, did a bit of them and they demanded I sign a contract. <laughs> and I said, why? And they said, well, you know, if you do X, I said, well, if you like, but, yeah. you know. Who cares? If you don't want me anymore, you'll get rid of me. Which they did eventually, you know, after 10, 11, 12 years, whatever mm -hmm. it was. Um, BBC, Radio 5 Live, when I started working with them, I don't know, I think it was maybe two decades. Really? Before they asked me to write a contract. Seriously? So, yeah, two decades. Um, they're just now it's just do, you know, by the by, you know, if you want me to come up and go and do a game, just give me a call and I'll send yeah. you an invoice. Brilliant. Just freelance. Um, just in the case, though, I just, I think I'm okay. I'm, I was doing lots of work at the time. I had a job over in Ireland mm -hmm. for many years there. I had a job working for BBC Scotland TV as well. Mm -hmm. 
um, doing some stuff for them for a few years. Um, I had a job for 17 years there working for Chelsea Football Club. Yeah. I'm doing them all at the same time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, juggling. But they're all really nice jobs. I was doing, you know, you know, media talking about football and analysing football. I was writing for lots and lots of different newspapers, you know, and I obviously I do my own writing. I don't do it. It's not ghosted in any way. So it's a different thing from, which most of other ex-players do. Yeah. So it's okay for me to say, no, don't bother with a contract. Yeah, so, look, if you don't want me to do it anymore, you don't think I'm good enough, just get somebody else. But that's okay for me to do it because I've got all these other jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's harder for other people to do. And trust me, I understand that. Yeah, of course. You're paying the mortgage and you need the job. And I was just fortunate enough where I'm, no, I've not done that. It's, it's harder now because the way law has changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and if you, HR just would not allow that now. I'm afraid. No, I mean you're you're covering some of the biggest games you've mentioned already. The three games that you've got in the week to come. Um, you know, with the with the you're travelling all around the UK and you're even saying about going abroad and or over to Ireland and stuff like that as well. What's the biggest lessons that you've picked up through moving into the media? From you've been you've been in the media for a while. You've been writing, but also doing TV journalism and punditry as well as radio journalism and punditry. What, has there been any big lessons that you've learned when you moved into that? Well, that'll be book number three. <laughs> <laughs> and it is actually, I've kind of mostly written it. Yeah. Um, what it's like within that industry, which mm -hmm. is different than the industry I was in before. One of the biggest things is football, playing football is an industry that the absolute and utter joy that most of us had was, do you know, at the end of the week, there's an answer. Yeah. There's a yes, no, win, lose. Aye. <laughs> it's there, right? There's, it's, it really is, I, I would tell you, the, the, the biggest thing, if I'm honest with you, and it, it hurts me to say it, but I'll tell you, playing football is a meritocracy. It's a pure meritocracy. And there's a, a, a love of that. If you're good enough, you'll get a game. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what everyone else says. See, you can flick about it a wee bit. You see, if you ain't good enough, you're not getting again. No. <laughs> Full stop, right? You're not getting again. Um, media's different. Media's very, very different. It's, it's so vague. You know, what gets you in various parts of media is very, very vague. Um, and it can be many different things that changes all the time. Yeah. And the, now that, does that sound like me saying, oh, I don't get jobs because I am this, that, and the next thing. No, it doesn't. What it tells me is you've got to accept it. you just got to take it in the chin. That industry moves all the time. Um, and, and you look back in football and think, God, that was great. If you were good enough, you got it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. That was brilliant. Um, but if I had one big thing of it all, never be embittered by it. Above all else, oh, it's a human nature thing. I'm doing this job. Oh, I wish I was doing that. Oh, they're getting more than me. Yeah. Anyway, have a wee look down there. They're getting less than you. <laughs> you know, and it's, from below, it always looks like, why, how come they're moaning? I mean, I work in, and somebody will be going, oh, yeah, but he's getting X amount for getting that job with them. And I'm going, Do, I don't get that. They're paying me to watch a game of football. <laughs> <laughs> so stop. Exactly, yeah. 
Full stop. Yeah. You know, okay, it's radio. It doesn't pay a lot now, right? So what? They're paying me to go and watch a game of football. <laughs> it's, it's see when you just strip things away. And I've, so the thing I've learned, which I didn't need to learn because I was never a, an embittered type person, but it's been underlined time and time and time and time again because I'm surrounded by it. The people that go out of it, be it football, be it media, be it anything, who are embittered. And that embitterness kind of ruins the rest of their life. Yeah. I would just love to pass that on to people. You know, just never be that. Because it's not always going to work for you. It's not, you're not always going to get what you're going to get. Now and again, you'll get a lucky break. Yeah. You try and use it as much as you possibly can. But if you spend your life being embittered and thinking, I should get this, I want this, I didn't get that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you'll find yourself an old man or an old woman. And you'll be, I think it was Jerry Sedovitz who said, I should say that then, eh? Um, I was going to say that. Careful now. <laughs> but it's kind of, you'll you, you, you get wrinkled, right? Yeah. You'll get old. Yeah. And then you'll die. And I don't want to die wrinkled. I want to die looking all right. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to say that. I was thinking, I might have been uh, Bing Hitler said that. Anyway, so. Um, <laughs> Do that if you can possibly do it. I know it's not easy and it's life's not that simple a lot of the time. But there's a lot of people that have got half decent jobs. Yeah. That are still walking about with a bottom lip out. And uh and it's back to can it's nice the way this is all turned around back to the start. It comes back to that word, give me respect for what I'm oh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, you have brought it back perfectly, but what we do tend to do is finish the podcast episodes with um, with a question for our guests where we say is that, you know, what are your key fundamentals when it comes to communication? Through the career that you've had, it'll be interesting to hear what you see as the key fundamentals for the communication. Ah, that's easy. That's, that's, that's good, that, because um, I was very fortunate. I had a number of friends. One of my great friends in my young life was John Peel. Um, when I was down in England, um, we got to meet really early on. He was my hero before I went down mm -hmm. to Chelsea and we became friends. And like many other of the great communicators in, in media, he just said, look, you're talking to someone. You're talking to a person. When you've got that mic in front of you, and we, we, I know there's other people listening to me and you. Yep. I'm talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and other people may be listening, but I'm talking to you. Yeah. We're very specific. And you must be doing that. And it, it may be I'm doing a commentary. And I'll have, have some things in my head before I do the commentary. Now, it won't be, how do I sell myself and sound clever? It won't be set piece bits that are funny. It'll be <clears throat> what I want to hear when I'm driving along, um, I'm listening to the radio. It'll be, tell me something that I might not know. Not that I don't know, that I might not know. If you try and tell some think people things you don't know, you're arrogant. Because people know lots of things, right? But try and share something of your knowledge that they don't know. Mm -hmm. If at all possible, develop a narrative. I know that I'm, I'm listening. I'm on a long drive and there's a game on for an hour and a half or maybe sometimes two hours. I want to have something to hang on to. Yeah. I need to think, oh, did, did he do that? Why has he done that? Oh, watch out for that or listen out for that. And you put these little things in where... <clears throat> that people that oh, oh yeah that, that that's why that's happening, and I must listen on to that. Now don't pretend it's better than it is. Never do that. But every game of football that I do, there'll be interest in it. Yeah. If there's disinterest in it, you're not paying attention. 
Right. So <clears throat> always think of the listener singular. <laughs> yeah. And give it to them. Tell them, if at all possible, be humorous and fun and make it an enjoyable experience. There's nothing more annoying than listening to somebody saying, this is terrible. I can't believe how rubbish <laughs> this is. What well, I can't believe I'm sitting here. Oh, shut up. You're getting paid to sit there. Yeah. Tell us something. So I never go into any, obviously prep, prep and all that's important. Yeah, mm -hmm. that all goes without saying. But I've never gone into any of those, any game or any, any time I've actually talking, talked radio, TV or anything without having a, okay, do you want to make this quite entertaining and enjoyable? Like I've told you one or two stories today. Yeah. That hopefully people will think, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And okay, they might buy a book from it. Fair enough, you know, but it might be a bit interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's what you want. <laughs> so do that every every single time that you broadcast. But don't be fake about it. Mm. Just just be straight up and honest about it. So that sounds like quite a lot to take on board. Um, but it's not really when you've been doing it for quite a long time. Um, and I have to say, I, I'll be honest with you, I absolutely love doing it. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant thing to do. And if you can be enthusiastic about it and share it, you're sharing everything in people's lives. And it's that's a brilliant thing to do. Absolutely. Well, I mean, listen, Pat, it's been absolutely fantastic listening to these stories and we definitely have gleaned loads from it. Just while we're here, how can anyone still get hold of your books? You've got two, you've said uh, the accidental footballer and football, how to survive it. So where can we get them? I am I'm terrible at selling them. <laughs> I'm, 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 I remember going to different books at festivals and doing an hour's interview and realise I never mentioned the books. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you're not there to do that. Uh -huh. right, look, you can get them Watson, you can get them online on Amazon, you get them anywhere. You can, I, I particularly like people who go to um, independent books stores because I'm a kind of indie kind of guy Good. and keep them going. That's where I buy my books and I'm a lover of that. But whether they sell one or 10,000 or 50,000. It's kind of neither here nor there for me. They're out there, hopefully to entertain and you enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, I think I've had one bad review, which considering the first win sold about 50,000. That's all right. No, not not that too one bad. Was, that one had the tagline that I was telling you about the tweets. <laughs> the one that he came <laughs> from that specific. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that was all about, right? And I, I show my wife, I have a look at this one, it's hilarious. Um, so, and there's what if I could say one last thing, if you don't mind, just of course, one moment do. of listeners' time. The second book talks a lot about my son. Of course, uh, Simon, yeah. Yeah, Simon. So I've got a son and a daughter. Lucy's sort of annoyingly brilliant at everything. So he's a doctor and, you know, I'm thick and, I'm a thick <laughs> short planks in comparison, right? So she's fine, great, getting married, all that sort of stuff. But Simon's... Autism has been the biggest thing in our lives. Of course. Life's and lives. Um, we never talked about it uh, for years. There was reasons for that. Uh, it wasn't that we were embarrassed by it or hiding it. It was the fact it was his decision to make when to talk about his autism. Um, and he agreed before the second book that it would be okay to talk about it mm -hmm. and write about it. Um, so I did. So the last part of this book is explaining you know, well, I'm going through all these complicated things and hard, difficult things at Motherwell and you name it, all these, and it is quite a wild story, particularly in the Motherwell side, mm -hmm. but 
bit of Tranmere and Kelly as well, which I loved in the time of Kelly. But the real thing was happening away. Yeah. What was really happening. So I was able to share that. And they've been able to share that with people. So the first book said to people, it's okay being an outsider. I was one. Yeah. As long as you yourself, you can make it. And, and, and we're, a lot of people are outsiders and struggle. That was a, a crime to say, look, don't worry. Mm -hmm. It's okay an outsider. Another one is to say, you know, what we went through uh, with Simon and the difficulties he had and how he's managed it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and just to finish off, I'll tell you a final story, which is beyond about. So I said to Simon, and he said, yeah, write about me. You know, and it's autism. So, you know, he will never not be autistic. That's of course. Never happens. Um, yeah. Anyway, the books arrived, right? And I said, time the books, the new books arrived at the one of the year. And they went, oh, really? I went, do you want me to read you a bit? And he went, oh, all right. We're sitting at lunch, breakfast, right? Okay. So I wrote, read a wee passage, a wee bit, a couple of paragraphs. And he was bored senseless. <laughs> <laughs> and it was upstairs here where we are. And I, I looked after it. After about a minute, I went, do you want to just get in and play on the computer? And I went, yeah. We <laughs> walked down and sat where I'm sitting here, sitting here, right? Yeah. And he, I had to go to a game that night. My wife was out working. She works for special needs kids. And as I was driving to the game, I phoned up and I said, oh, I showed Simon the book and I read a wee bit of the book. He was disinterested. And she said, he hasn't shut up about it all day. Really? <laughs> and it was this spine going oh, moment man. of, oh, yes. It's just, it was this lovely moment. Of, so the, the, the moral of that is, what you learn about autism when Simon's 31 now, 32 now, actually, they change and they adapt and mm -hmm. they improve and they, they grow. And never to think, oh, it's going to get there. It's to kind of take the joys out of every day and the, the, the ups and the downs and the positive, you know, the difficult days. And the, 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 the moment, the day that Simon passed his driving test is still up there with the happiest days of my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, he actually, that, I could not believe it at no point that he'd ever managed that. And it was extraordinary. So within the book, the minute people read it and come back and say, oh my goodness, that was incredibly interesting what you said about Simon. Uh, but it's only part of his story as well. So uh, it, it was good to get that out of there. So if you, if anyone does go and read the books, see the important things. Just hope you enjoy them. No, well, I, I have to admit that that, that, that storyline that's going through whilst you're dealing with all the things and you're you know, moving back up from England to Scotland and... The, going through the process, it's of course in the nineties and early two thousands, where there wasn't a lot of information out there for yourself yes. and your wife. It, it really is a fascinating part of the book as well, and and a genuine heart moment as well, where you because you 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 learn about Simon the character that's coming through the book at the same time, and uh, you, you can really tell how much family was important to you as well through that book, and and it's been great. And Pat, I have to say thank you so much for giving me your time today. I really really appreciate that. This has been a really, really worthwhile and meaningful episode, and I'm sure there's plenty of things that people listening to this will be able to to be entertained with, but also to learn from as well. So thank you very much, Pat. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. <laughs>